0: let the praises of the Lord be in their throats and a two-edged sword in their hand. I wonder what you thought of when you read that in Psalm 149 this morning. To execute vengeance on the nations. I would have to guess there's some spectrum of reaction. Maybe some are just confused by reading that in Scripture. Maybe um, some feel embarrassed to read that in the Bible. Maybe some feel some sense of vindication, or perhaps maybe just all of these at the same time, to have read about violence in the hand of God's saints being praised. Well, today it raises this question, this age-old eternal question for us anyway, about the relationship of government and justice to the work of the church. And it does have everything to do with all saints and baptizing a little child. These readings are not accidental. They're placed here today with a purpose. And so I want to unpack a little bit about this idea of government and of justice as it leads us into thinking about what it means to be baptized into Christ Jesus. Well, this whole um, debate or dilemma or difficulty, this um, enigma that we have about government in the church, we have a spectrum of belief, which you can probably imagine, that spans all 2,000 years of the church's history. On the one side, you have those who believe that the church and government have no relationship whatsoever. In Amish or Mennonite communities, there's those who um, retreat, who don't believe that Christians should participate in just rule or government of any kind. And one side of that is obviously pacifism, that Christians can't take up any works of justice or of violence in their hands. And then you have on this other side, those who feel that we are called to high cooperation with government. We can get involved in its works and its public um, duties and even when it goes to war. And out of this developed in the church the just war tradition. Not that all wars are just, but that there are wars which Christians may find that they are called to help execute. And then there's probably most of us who are somewhere between these two trying to find our way between what we see as um, maybe impossible extremes or uncertain how to deal with. Well, I can't resolve those, obviously, here. I'm not expert enough to do it anyway. But I do think I can lay for us a few foundations about the relationship between government and the church that all of us should agree on as we um, think about just rule and God's reign. And so I'll give us just three pillars Three basic things that I think we need to take away wherever we are on this spectrum of the relationship between the church and government. And the first is this, that there is only one God. Those of you who um, a few weeks ago were able to join us on Zoom or a few of you in the classroom, we hosted um, Professor Stanley the emeritus professor from Duke. Actually, David and Vivek interviewed him for a class that we teach together. And Harawas, as those of you attended would know, is maybe the most prominent or one of the most prominent pacifist theologians in the last century. So it wasn't a small day. He's at the end of his age, he knows, in his life, but he spoke to us about his own beliefs as a pacifist. And in answer to a question, maybe from one of you, about justice and about violence in the Old Testament, Professor Harawas said this, if the God and ruler of the world tells you to go to war and kill someone, I recommend you do it. Now, Harwas is a pacifist. But he's very clever. He recognizes that what we cannot do and remain orthodox is to divide God against himself. To take the God of the Old Testament and make it plan A, the mean, angry God, who had to go his way after that plan failed, and Jesus, the kind, gentle one, comes in. Jesus is eternal with the Father, and they share a common will. Everything that the Son sees the Father doing, he does. And so, Harawas, it was a clever way of saying, we can't come out of here with two gods, or God divided against himself as if the Father and the Son and the Spirit do not all have the same designs and will and purpose. And so it is that we see God, we see a single plan, a single perfect will that does not change. One God. Second, that God is a God of justice. God intends to bring about just ends. This is why I think Harawas as a pacifist can allow for the fact that if God says to do something, allow him to do it because he has a plan to bring about justice in the world, to put an end to corruption, to suffering, to oppression, to war. Think about how often in our gospel we read of Jesus the King. Jesus goes out to begin his sermons by saying, the kingdom of God is at hand. This is God's anointed, which is a term for a royal king. The New Testament gospel through and through is about the Son of God coming as the king to bring justice. We pray that every week. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Don't we confess it every week in the creed. He sits at the right hand of God and will come again to judge the living and the dead. God is a God of justice. And he will bring about justice. That's the prayer of the psalm, by the way. It is the king's justice. When Israel takes up the sword and goes about doing justice, it is for a decree that is written against the kings. What Israel was to do was to bring about God's desire and end. So there is one God. That God is a God of justice. And third, the means of that justice today are Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now I add this third one because the means of God's justice today are no longer Israel as it was in the Old Testament. This is again why Harawas could say if the God of the world tells you to do something as he did with Israel, I would do it. But he knows very well that the nations of this world are no longer the nations of God. Not one of them. No king or prime minister or president or court stands in the place of God. They reign at Christ's pleasure. But there is one king today and it is Christ Jesus. And he sits on his throne to rule out, to rule the world. And so it is in this third element that we say when Christ is king and not America or Britain or whatever nation you want to add to the list, that the primary duty of the Christian is not to cooperate with government, but to call them to bow. This is maybe the reminder to those on the further right who like to cooperate with government and see policies brought about that benefit just ends. These things I think we can't necessarily forbid. But we must not forget that our primary duty is to point kings and prime ministers and courts and local legislators to bow before the righteous one. Our primary duty is an evangelical one. And if we get so caught up in governing that we forget the good news of Christ, we have lost our way. Christ is king. There is one God. He is a God of justice. And it is his justice that he will bring about when his son comes again in glory. Let me bring that just to bear on baptism today as we prepare to baptize Beatrice in this moment of um, recognizing and calling people into the church. And I want to just apply that in three ways. And so, yes, it is a six-point sermon if you're counting, but they're brief points that won't take long in doing them. But I want to take this one God and His justice that He rules in Christ and apply it to our context in baptism and about being anointed by Christ. We read today in Ephesians, did we not, that he has placed Christ above, at the right hand, and all things under his feet. So, one, those of us who are baptized in Christ share one king. This is our identity. It's maybe one of the primary reasons that we read a passage of Christ's reign at baptism. What is it that unites us with one another? With those in previous centuries, with those in other countries? It is this one who is the head of the body of the church, Ephesians. He gathers us as his children. We share a common king. When we baptize Beatrice today, you could imagine us saying to her, we gather you by water into our community that he might hold you fast. That he would be your own subject. That you would learn to love his ways. That's our prayer for her. And we share that king. So it's one of the reasons Anglicans baptize infants, by the way, is because baptism is never an individual moment. It is a joining a community of faith under a common king in one body. It is to share our love, to be spiritually united with one another. We share a common king. We share a common vision. Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1:15 today I pray for you with thanksgiving, as he always does. It's beautiful for this church. That God may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of him. We share a common vision. Paul goes on to say that the eyes of your heart, extraordinary metaphor, isn't it? The eyes of your heart, the deepest depths of the fibers of your body, would be enlightened to know this God, to know the hope to which he has called you. That's a little bit in Jesus' own saying in Luke 6 today in these parables. Do you know the hope to which he has called you? To perfection, to to an age of eternal peace and justice and comfort where there is no more weeping and no more oppression. That is the hope to which he has called you, to be Christ's forever. He's called us with this common vision And he says, the hope to which he has called you, to the riches that are ours in Christ. Now imagine if Jesus ascended to the high reign of Christ and all things under his feet and the heavens of the earth are his, he shares them with us. It's a remarkable kind of thing we don't think of often. What belongs to me when I'm grasping for things in this world? And Paul says, everything and beyond it. Because Christ has won it for us. We share a common vision in God's reign, in his hope, in his riches, and in his power. The power, the immeasurable power, Paul says, that is ours in Christ Jesus that raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand. How much power is that? Paul says it's immeasurable and it is easy to lose track of that kind of power that's with us and we lose our way in the needs and things of the world. But we remind ourselves today in this prayer, immeasurable power has been given as a gift to the church. So we share this common king, we share a common vision, and we care, share common virtues. If people have all these riches and eternal hope, what kind of people should we be in the world? Well, that's Jesus' answer in these sayings, is it not? Give without expecting to receive back. Turn the other cheek. Love your neighbor. Bless those who curse you. Why? Because you have everything in Christ Jesus laid up for you. You have immeasurable power working in you. Why would you cling to the things of this world? You see how the vision of Christ as king transforms the way we live in the world. Be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. This is why politics is so important to us. If we grasp the fact that Christ is king and will come again to judge the living and the dead, it transforms us as a community. People with a common vision, people with a common king, people with a common set of virtues in the world that brings light to the nations. Friends, we gather together now and we pray over Beatrice, our sister, and ask him to welcome her into our communion. Amen.